and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? I'm doing okay. That's good. How are you? I'm all right. Yeah. Excited for tonight's movie? Uh, I know nothing about tonight's movie except what my research has told me, but also... The guy who wrote the novel also wrote Day of the Triffids, and I did not enjoy that novel, so I don't know what to expect for this movie. Gotcha. Well, I knew this movie by reputation long before I saw it. Uh, that's what happens when you grow up in a household that watches a lot of Simpsons. Uh, there's an episode of The Simpsons that parodies this movie, um, because there's sort of an episode of The Simpsons that gets around to parodying everything eventually mm-hmm. um i love that you can apparently recreate all of citizen kane yes from the simpsons references over the years yes village of the damned is kind of the quintessential like evil children movie uh going on to inspire like many many others in mm. its subgenre. would you say that the only other example we've had in this subgenre is the bad seed yes cool and you know, the bad seed has kind of like a like a psychopathic child in it. Village of the Damned goes for the children with powers mm. uh, angle. And it's probably worth noting that the evil boy episode of The Twilight Zone, It's a Good Life, uh, with the like telepathic evil boy, uh, aired in 1961 after this movie came out. Though it was based on a 1953 short story. So, you know, these ideas are permeating the culture at the time, I guess you could say. Sure. I mean, the novel came out in 57, so. Mm -hmm. So what can you tell us about the novel other than you didn't like a book that the author also wrote? Uh, Well, how about I start with the author? Sure. His name is John Wyndham, also known as... John Wyndham Parks Lucas Bainan Harris. That's a lot of names. It's a lot of names. Uh, He was born in 1903 in Warwickshire, England, to an upper middle class family. His father was a barrister and his mother's family, uh, like her dad, was an ironmaster. So the person who owns where they do all the smelting. Sure. Uh, Unfortunately, his parents divorced when he was young, and John and his brother went with his mum, and they would go through boarding houses to spa resorts. Eventually, uh, when he was old enough, John and his brother would go into prep schools and boarding schools until he was 18. Now, while his brother Vivian Bainan Harris had a passion for acting, theater, and writing, John didn't have any real direction. He needed some time to kind of figure out what he wanted to do. So he tried farming. He tried being a law clerk. uh, He tried doing commercial art, advertising. And eventually he's like, you know what? Let's give writing a go. Okay. My brother seems to like it. Let me try it. He began writing some short stories throughout the 20s and 30s. And his first novel was a detective pulp fiction that came out in 1927. 
And in particular, like his bread and butter was pulp short stories under many multiple pseudonyms. He had plenty of names to choose from. Sure. He lived at a place called the Pen Club, which was a co-ed boarding house. And he met Grace Wilson, who was a teacher, and he was completely smitten. Uh, She was as well. Uh, But they couldn't marry because the marriage bar meant that Grace would lose her teaching position if she married. Hmm, sure. World War II began, and John began working at the Ministry of Information as a censor and would volunteer as a fire watcher during the Blitz and as a member of the Home Guard. He would eventually join the British Army as a cipher operator. He landed at Normandy after D-Day, and while he was deployed, he would write Grace letters about his fears of being tainted from the horrors of the war. Yikes. After the war, he used his experiences from the Blitz to fill out his novel, The Day of the Triffids, published in 1951, under this new pen name, John Wyndham, which gave the illusion of it being like the first novel from a debut author. Sure, that can be valuable. Yeah, especially because it was a big hit. And so he stuck with that pen name uh, with... All of his future works, basically. Um, He followed up Dave the Triffids with The Kraken Wakes in 1953, The Chrysalids in 1955, where women give birth to mutants, and The Midwich Cuckoos in 1957, which uh, Village of the Damned is adapted from. Now, Wyndham has been described as uh, William Blake with a science doctorate. Okay. Which I think is very interesting, considering what becomes his bread and butter at this time of like science fiction with like kind of a, a futuristic horror thriller blend. Sure. All of these novels are very successful, but with its fair share of criticism as well, particularly with people throwing around the term cozy catastrophe. Do you know what that means? No, I can kind of like guess based on this like cozy horror trend that I've been seeing go around lately that I'm not a huge fan of? Well, people felt that um, a lot of these novels are like a catastrophe happens. It's, you know, end of the world, end of civilization as we know it, and readers and critics feeling that this is not believably harsh enough Mm. because they would find that the core heroes or core protagonists would survive relatively unscathed, like... They might have seen some horrors, but like they're relatively fine. Uh, and they maybe find like a little bit of a quiet happiness. Mm. Um, I think if that isn't quite making sense to you, listener, which is like fair, think about like Dawn of the Dead when it's the period of the movie where they're just like hanging out in the mall in their kind of little apartment. And it's kind of like a little bit of a fun reprieve from the rest of the movie. There's a lot of pushback on this criticism of Wyndham, citing that Wyndham needed to use vague or metaphoric language to kind of deal with censorship at the time, um, particularly when he would describe like sexuality themes and things like that. It's interesting because like you talked about him going through the war and being worried about being scathed by that experience. So it's kind of interesting that critics were being you know, critical of his characters not really experiencing that same mm-hmm. thing. So Margaret Atwood, who was heavily influenced by Wyndham, in response to this criticism of Wyndham, said, mm. quote, 
one might as well call World War II cozy because not everyone died in it. Right. You know, so there's this like cozy horror trend going around on the internet these days. And it's kind of this desire. It's it's sort of, to me, almost feels like the uh, coffee shop AU sort of aesthetic coming to horror. It's this desire to have like the horror genre, but without anything upsetting happening in it. I see where you're coming from, but that idea of a cozy horror or cozy mystery mm. goes throughout the genre. We've seen it already. We talked about it in the Clue episode, right? right. Like that's where the guy who made the board game, he, what he was drawing on, he wanted a cozy mystery thing you could play as a board game. But, you know, the thing about the criticism of, like, the cozy catastrophe is that, like, I mean, what is reality right now if not a cozy catastrophe <laughs> where we're all, like, continuing to go about our lives and read our books and play our video games and whatnot while, like, the world is burning down around us? Well, I will say that while cozy catastrophe is thrown around as a criticism, I don't believe that it's inherently bad to want to find stability and calmness and comfortability in the midst of despair. Mm -hmm. And on that note, let me move on. <laughs> Sometimes your books need to have like variation in tone so that they don't just become like one note slogs through, you know, a gray morass of uh, melancholy. Uh, shout out Margaret Atwood. <laughs> I was thinking of Cormac McCarthy, but... Okay, uh, yeah, I I prefer Margaret Atwood's shorter things because I find her novels are like that. Sure. Uh, in any case, John Wyndham is firmly set in science fiction, but I think you can see how his works bridge genres with invasion literature, thriller, and horror. With The Midwitch Cuckoos, which... Uh, has women giving birth to alien children, spoilers. Uh, you can see its ties to science fiction, but also its inspiration from both nature and folklore. Mm -hmm. Do you know much about the cuckoo, Ben? Yeah, cuckoos are birds that will like come into another bird's nest and lay their egg in that other bird's nest so that basically that other bird will do all the work of like raising the cuckoo's kid for them. And uh, they're also like, therefore the origin of like the term cuck in like modern slang <laughs> and, and all of that idea of like... Uh, not modern slang, that goes back to Shakespeare. Sure, but like it seems to be particularly prevalent in the last few years for some strange reason. And yeah, the whole idea of like getting cuckolded and, and all of that language comes from the idea of cuckoos. Yeah, Cuckoos practice brood parasitism, mm -hmm. uh, where, as you said, they lay their eggs in another nest. It has a shorter incubation period, so it, it'll hatch first, it'll grow faster, and young cuckoos have been known to push out its nest mates to lessen the competition. Mm -hmm. um, so that is directly tied here with the title. Um, a little less explicit here, I think, is the European folklore figure of the changeling. Changelings as folklore, you know, it is European, but you can really see it concentrated in Germany, but especially the, the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, Ireland, Cornwall, Wales, Scotland, 
even the Isle of Man, they all have their own unique flavors. Yeah, it's a of very like changeling. Yeah, it's a very like Celtic thing. Yeah. But I mean, you do see it in Germany, you see it in Scandinavia, like it is elsewhere. Do you know much about the changelings? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, for folks who don't know, it's about the fae or fairies, but the fae stealing children and or women and taking their place in the human world. So women become threatened when they are in uh, what is described as like a liminal state. So, oh, you're leaving home because you're a bride. Oh, you're about to be pregnant or give birth. Like you're kind of in this transitional period. For children, it's pretty simple. They take their place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, fae practice, according to the folklore, I don't know if they really exist. Uh, they <laughs> practice brood parasitism. They'll kidnap women mm-hmm. um, so that they will have to give milk to the fae young. Or the fae will take the place of a baby to be cared for and protected. They'll get the milk. They'll get, you know, pampered. Yeah. In different flavors of the changeling, it's either a very old fae who's like, it's time for me to retire, <laughs> or like, um, just like an average fae who, uh, you know, takes the baby's place because there are nefarious plans for the baby, particularly in Ireland. I know that that's, uh, the fae are not good, good folk. Yeah. Uh, they are to be feared. <laughs> a changeling can be identified through exposure to fire, water, or an intricate ritual involving eggshells uh, in order to reveal its true nature. Basically, something to do with eggshells, whether it's like drinking something from the eggshell or ingesting eggshells, can essentially cause the fae, the changeling, to speak. And you can be like, aha, you're not really my kid. Uh, And then they have to give the baby back. There are real cases of people dying because people thought that they were changelings. Uh, The two I'll bring up, which are kind of the most famous. In 1826, there was a young boy named Michael Leahy. Uh, He was four years old, and he was drowned by his mother, who, in her defense at trial, said that she was trying to drive the fairy out of him. She was acquitted. And Wow, 1826 just seems real late for that kind of behavior. Uh, In 1895, Bridget Cleary... Uh, an Irish woman was burned to death by her husband, her cousins, like at least 10 people because they believed that she had been a changeling. Wow. She had pneumonia and Mr. Cleary was like, this isn't my wife. Um, people don't get sick. What is this? Yeah. He, uh, I dug into this cause I was like, that's really late. What's going on? He didn't believe in the doctor's medicine. Hmm. So didn't give it to her. And she, got progressively worse and he's like no there's no way that this is my wife like she has to be a changeling um everyone in the village was like yeah no we're pretty sure she's a changeling and like it was very open that he would be like beating her to try to get the changeling to like go away um and then like one night he um with like 10 other people um burned her alive uh in the house this went to trial and was a big deal because it's 1895 but also this was uh in ireland when there is the discussion of irish home rule mm-hmm. in london mm-hmm. uh and they're like the irish can't rule themselves this guy killed his wife right yeah uh bunch of superstitious peasants over here yeah yeah that was the argument yeah um which is why that's particularly 
huge as like a legal case. Right. Uh, which I'll remind you that John briefly worked as a law clerk and his dad was a barrister. Like, I think anyone growing up in England is like aware of this folklore. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always kind of clocked changeling folklore as a kind of cultural expression of anxieties around like either that feeling of like this woman, she's like not the woman I fell in love with, you know, like we, we courted and she was so fun and now we're married and it sucks. This can't possibly be my wife or else like anxieties around like, I don't know, you have blonde hair and blue eyes and your wife has blonde hair and blue eyes. And then suddenly your kid has brown hair and brown eyes and you're like, this is someone else's kid. And instead of going after the milkman or something, you're <laughs> like, it's a changeling from the Feywild. So people smarter than me who have done more research have mm-hmm. been able to point to neurodivergence in children as oh. likely people being like, ah, my kid is a changeling when the kid's actually neurodivergent, whether that's autism or anything around that spectrum. Yeah. Maybe they're intensely depressed. In children, depression usually comes out as like a lot of anger. Yeah, that's a, that's a neat theory. Yeah. I could, I could see that. Yeah. Um, the folklore itself... Uh, likely also ties to the anxieties of poor peasants having a lot of kids yeah, and that being a drain on resources when you don't have a lot to go around yeah, and being like, no, everyone needs to pull their weight. This kid isn't pulling their weight. Yeah. Uh, that kind of anxiety. So for John Wyndham, Midwich Cuckoos and Day of the Triffids are his most famous and enduring works. Day of the Triffids influenced 28 Days Later screenwriter Alex Garland, and Atwood calls Midwich Cuckoo's Wyndham's masterpiece uh, and says that the children would haunt her dreams. Mm. Have you ever read the book? Oh, Midwich Cuckoo's? Yeah. No. No? Okay. Um, It's kind of interesting. Uh, I haven't read it, but the synopsis is quite interesting to me. Um... So when it begins, there's a strange aura around the English village of Midwich, where if you enter this kind of aura, people fall unconscious. Um, they have this thing with like a canary where it enters, it falls unconscious, they take the canary out and it comes back awake. Hmm. After about a day, this aura disappears and it turns out that all women of childbearing age in the village are pregnant. Um, they all give birth, and there's now 31 boys and 30 girls born. They appear normal, but they have golden eyes, blonde hair, and pale silvery skin. As they age, they turn out to be telepathic and be able to control other people's actions. They have group minds by their gender, so boys have kind of one group mind, girls have the other. And they have accelerated aging. They look 16, but they're actually only nine years old. Hmm. So they're raised. Um, they end up going to school. But as the powers become more apparent and uh, people begin to fear them, they kind of get put onto their own farm. <laughs> hmm. uh, there's a guy who nearly runs over one of the kids. Um, from the synopsis I've read, it seems to be an accident. But the kids... Uh, use their telepathic powers to make the guy drive into a wall and kills him. Um, they do this also with a bull that tries to like run down one of the kids. They make the bull drown itself. 
Meanwhile, military intelligence have identified that there are four other bubbles that have happened worldwide, one in Mongolia, one in Russia, one in Australia, and one in the Canadian North. For the Canadian North, um, it happened to the Inuit, and when they were born, the Inuit realized that these aren't our kids and killed them. Sure. Mongolians, they... Blonde hair and silver skin aren't traditionally Inuit features. <laughs> Mongolians killed the children and the mothers. Mm. Russians just nuked the whole town. <laughs> and in Australia... Only way to be sure. <laughs> in Australia, the children died as babies without any real clear reason. Australia be like that. It's a harsh place. <laughs> it was probably some of those giant spiders. It was probably those giant spiders. The Midwich children, they know that there's a threat from the government. Um, they use their powers to make sure no one can, like, fly a plane over top of them. And so they go to the government and they're like, look, you can't kill us unless you kill everyone in this village. In this kind of, like, hostage situation. So just let us live in peace. We just want to be. Don't view us as a threat. But obviously they're a threat, right? So one of their old school teachers, Gordon... He learns that he's going to die in a couple weeks due to a heart condition. He's growing increasingly concerned about these children. Because he was their school teacher, they kind of trust him a little bit. So he uses that trust to strap a bomb to himself, go to the children, and as they're gathered around him, he blows himself up and takes the children with him. And that's the end. Dark. Yes. So you can see how The Midwich Cuckoos is kind of a science fiction thriller. Um, it's also been described as like a country horror. It's been described as deadly dull. <laughs> uh, and upon later reflection in the 2000s, some folks kind of described it as a bit of a, a punch in the gut in the age of genetic experimentation, hmm. which I think is interesting seeing like that's like 50 years after it was written, without that being necessarily in Wyndham's head. Yeah. The novel was successful. It was published in 1957, and this movie adaptation came out three years later. Uh, because of how successful the novel was, Wyndham began to work on a sequel called Midwich, Maine, but only did a couple chapters. He decided against it. He wasn't very interested. He would write three more novels, The Outward Urge in 1959, Trouble with Lycan in 1960, and Chalky in 1968, in addition to many short stories. He married his longtime love, Grace, finally, in 1963, and he passed away in 1969, age 65. Hmm. So yeah, John Wyndham was such a star author in the 1950s. Like, he was very widely read for a science fiction author. Like, somehow, I guess he was like the respectable sci-fi author to read or something like that. I think because of the way that Day of the Triffids incorporates his own experiences from the Blitz and it's coming out 1951 when people are like starting to reckon with uh, mm. the trauma. Um, I think there's a lot of things going on there for him. Day of the Triffids was also hugely popular. It had many radio show adaptations and stuff. Yeah, it so, was turned into a movie. Yeah, so uh, that would probably be the big claim to fame for why he's big right uh, now in this contemporary time of the 1960s. <laughs> yeah, so he was he was such a big deal, and Day of the Triffids was so successful that MGM actually bought the movie rights to the Midwich Cuckoos uh, in June of 1957 before the book even came out. 
Nice. Like they were just like, oh, you're writing a new book? Cool, we'll make the movie. Um, now, MGM has been through a lot uh, since we talked about them last. They've never really been a big horror studio, so we only check in on them, you know, infrequently. Um, but they had distributed The Haunted Strangler and Fiend Without a Face back in 1958, but it otherwise stayed away from horror in the 1950s. We talked a little bit about MGM in those episodes, but, you know, it's been a while. So as a brief recap of how the studio's doing, as American audiences drifted away from theaters to television through the 1950s, uh, there was a desire to revitalize MGM, and that saw Nicholas Schenck, the president of Lowe's theater chain, removing Louis B. Mayer from in charge of the studio in 1951 in favor of Dor Sherry, who had run RKO before Howard Hughes took over that studio. Sherry cut loose expensive contracts and began a policy of reusing sets and costumes from movie to movie and focused the studio on its ever-popular musicals. Then the Paramount decision severed MGM from Lowe's and Sherry got the boot in sort of another executive power struggle uh, replaced with Joseph Vogel. And in 1957, the year that Louis B. Mayer died, the studio lost money for the first time in its history. So MGM kind of afloat in 1957, not sure what to do. Uh, they entered the TV business that year, both in terms of television production and in terms of selling their movies to TV studios, which like ended up being a big success for MGM, particularly because they sold the rights, the TV rights uh, to Wizard of Oz to CBS that year. And CBS began airing Wizard of Oz every year from that point on, which kind of made that a classic film of mm -hmm. MGM's. They also that year shut down their animation department, which led the heads of the animation department, William Hanna and Joseph Barbara, to found their own studio to produce cartoons for TV. So like a lot of ripple effects kind of happening. They picked up the rights to the Midwich Cuckoos, kind of put it in development, but it sort of took a while to turn into a real movie. In 1959, MGM had its most successful year in a long time with the release of the four-hour-long 70-millimeter epic Ben-Hur, which made $150 million gross at the box office in 1959 and won a record 11 Academy Awards, including Best Picture. So from there, MGM backed the tentpole strategy, the idea of having like one big blockbuster film and using its presumed mega success to basically fund the rest of your lineup for the year okay and that's a strategy that um tends to work until it doesn't it's a bubble that bursts well yeah you're putting all of your eggs in one basket exactly like a cuckoo right <laughs> So, um, meanwhile, MGM retitled Midwich Cuckoos to Village of the Damned, which to me makes perfect sense in terms of like selling it as a horror movie. Um, but it was kind of languishing in development. Uh, Robert Stevens, a frequent director of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, was signed on to direct the film. And there was a lot of like revolving door around who would play the lead role of Gordon Zellaby. Uh, Russ Tamblin was discussed. Oh, 
Uh, That's as, cool. Sorry, I know <laughs> I know him from his musicals. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. Um, also, Michael Rennie from mm-hmm. Day the Earth Stood Still. Uh, Glenn Ford was talked about at one point. Um, but ultimately, the script was written with Ronald Coleman in mind. Uh, that script was written by Sterling Siliphant. Uh, Siliphant was born in 1918 in Detroit, Uh, But his family moved to Glendale, California when he was a teenager, and he would graduate from the University of Southern California before making lieutenant during World War II. After his discharge, he was hired as a publicity director for Walt Disney. And through that, he broke into television, writing episodes of the Mickey Mouse Club in 1955. From there, uh, he kind of ended up writing for most of the big anthology shows of the time, Uh, including 11 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Village of the Damned was kind of early feature film work for Siliphant. With the 1960s, after this movie, Siliphant became known for uh, writing on the television series Naked City and creating and writing the television series Route 66. In 1967, he won an Academy Award for the script for In the Heat of the Night. Oh, and films he wrote in the 1970s include Marlowe, Murphy's War, The Poseidon Adventure, The Towering Inferno, The Enforcer, and Circle of Iron, which was based on a script called The Silent Flute that he had co-written with James Coburn and Bruce Lee, who was Siliphant's martial arts instructor. That's wild. Uh, yeah, Lee's death kind of resulted in The Silent Flute having a lot of problems in production and ultimately uh when it was produced as circle of iron uh lee's role was played by david carradine so siliphant writes this script uh the intent was to like shoot the movie in the u.s at mgm studios but you know it was still set in the uk uh, it was just a very like u.s impression of the uk uh and then in 1958 robert coleman died and the project was kind of floundering. Um, Mel Dinelli, who wrote The Spiral Staircase, was brought on to rework the script, though ultimately his work was not used in any form. Um, Then, sort of through pure weird coincidence, Coleman's widow, uh, Benita Hume, married actor George Sanders. And then in November of 1959, Sanders was cast in the lead as Gordon Zellaby, and production was officially moved to MGM's British division. So MGM British had been established in 1936 as MGM London, but the studio kind of got put on hold during the war. After the war, MGM British controlled 7,000 meters square of studio space, and they often rented out their sound stages to other studios who were, you know, needing sound stages in Britain. Fun fact about MGM British is that from 1966 to 1968, all of the sound stages were taken up by the production of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm. And ultimately, MGM British was actually shut down in 1970. Oh, why? Uh, Basically because there wasn't enough films using it for it to be profitable. profitable Because for two years, it was only used to make one movie. Okay. Okay. So uh, once Village of the Damned was brought over to MGM British, uh, Ronald Canock was put in charge of production, and he hired experienced television director Wolf Rilla to helm the project. So Wolf Rilla was born in Berlin in 1920 to actor Walter Rilla, 
Uh, but his family left Germany for London in 1934, where Wolf completed his education. In 1942, he worked for the BBC, you know, BBC Radio, uh, and he moved on to television in the late 1940s. He transitioned to feature film production with the help of Group 3, a government-funded production company run by Michael Balkin, John Baxter, and John Grierson to promote young talent getting their start in films, making movies for £50,000 or less. By 1960, Rilla was contracted to MGM British, for whom he made this film, and also Cairo in 1963, which starred his father and George Sanders again. Hmm. So speaking of Sanders, we haven't seen him since 1945's The Picture of Dorian Gray. So let's check in on Tom Conway's brother. <laughs> so back in the 40s, he was contracted to Fox. Um, his sort of like bread and butter was playing charming scoundrels in like historical costume dramas. He appeared in the 40s in films like A Scandal in Paris, The Ghost in Mrs. Muir, Forever Amber, and Samson and Delilah, slowly switching from lead roles to supporting character parts as he got older. As the studio system kind of broke down, he began signing short-term contracts with studios like RKO and MGM, um, kind of like three-picture deals at a time. In 1949, he divorced his wife, Susan Larson, and married socialite-turned-actress Zsa Gabor. And in 1950, he appeared in All About Eve for Fox, winning an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Historical films remained his day-to-day -day work. Uh, he appeared in films like Ivanhoe and King Richard and the Crusaders. And in 1954, he divorced Gabor, but appeared with her in a film in 1956, which I'm sure was a little awkward. Uh, in 1958, he appeared in the Jules Verne adaptation from The Earth to the Moon. And in 1959, he married Benita Hume. Uh, and in 1960, he published his autobiography, Memoirs of a Professional Cad. After appearing in Village of the Damned, uh, he appeared in A Shot in the Dark in 1964, which was the sequel to The Pink Panther. And he voiced Shere Khan in The Jungle Book in 1967. That same year, Sanders' mother died, his wife Benita died of bone cancer, and his brother Tom died of liver failure after a lifetime struggle with alcoholism. Sanders, after this, grew reclusive and depressed. Yeah. He was diagnosed with dementia, uh, which made it difficult for him to act or really do anything else that he enjoyed. So he smashed his grand piano with an axe, sold his house, and checked into a hotel where he committed suicide by overdosing on barbiturates at age 65 in 1972, just as he had told David Niven he would back in 1937. Whoa. When he told David Niven this, was it like, a, you know, if I ever do this, this is how I'll do it? Yeah, it was kind of like he talked to David Niven and said that like, David, it was like somebody at a party was asking people like, how do you think you're going to die kind of thing? Oh. And George Sanders said, I'm going to die at age 67 after an overdose on barbiturates. Ah. So yeah, just kind of morbid. Um, so Wolf Rilla, the director, was brought on to Village of the Damned six weeks before shooting was scheduled to begin. Uh, he was not happy with Sterling Siliphant's script. He believed it to ring false and generally betray a lack of knowledge about what life in England was like. It kind of had a very, like, American, 
you know, oh, what? Let's go down to the pub and let's see what's going on. What? What kind of like view of England? I mean, it makes sense. I don't. Dude never went to England. No. It sounded like so. Like, why would it be true? Yeah. Right. So, uh, Rilla was given a weekend to rewrite the script. So he and producer Knock got a hotel room and rewrote the script in a weekend. Um, Rilla was never really happy with the script, but he didn't have time to keep working on it. So there we go. Uh, in the role of George Sanders character's wife, uh, the studio cast Barbara Shelley, even though she was 26 years younger than him. We've seen Shelley before in cat girl and blood of the vampire. So she's, she's been around in horror movies already. Uh, their child in the movie is the leader of the Cuckoos, uh, and he is played by 11-year-old child actor Martin Stevens, who had been appearing in films since he was five. Stevens enjoyed the role, uh, which would become his most famous, because it was fun to imagine having power over adults. Sure. The success of his performance here led to two more horror roles before he retired from acting at age 17 to become an architect. Uh, another person in the cast will recognize is actor Michael Gwynn, uh, he was the monster in Revenge of Frankenstein. This time he appears in a much more prominent speaking role. Village of the Damned had a six-week shooting schedule and a budget of 82,000 pounds or $320,000. So, you know. Not a lot. It shot on location in the village of Lechmore Heath in addition to sound stages at MGM's Borehamwood Studio. Rilla decided to shoot the picture in a docudrama kind of style. Um, kind of like the Quatermass experiment or whatever, yes. whichever Quatermass that is. Yes. The very first one. Yes. Um, for the same kind of reason, believing that the horrors would be emphasized if the rest of the movie took place in like as normal a tone as possible. Yeah. The most prominent special effect in the movie is a glowing eye effect when the children use their powers. This was achieved through optical printing, um, kind of an animated overlay of white irises onto the footage as shot. Now, for ease of implementation, this was mostly done on freeze frames so that the eyes could be matched most precisely. There is one shot in the movie where the effect was applied over moving footage. And then there's several shots that were done with like a split screen with the freeze frame. So the eyes were freeze frame, but like other stuff in the shot could move um, in order to like improve the illusion. The BBFC found the eye effect to be too scary. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. And they informed MGM that they would get an X rating, uh, meaning no one under 16 could see the film, unless the effect was removed. So MGM complied uh, for the UK release. And so the UK release of the movie didn't have the glowing eyes and was issued with an A rating, uh, meaning that anyone under 12 needed to come in with an adult. The eye effect was retained for the US release. And I think nowadays, if you see the movie in the UK, they have the eye effect. It's basically the most iconic thing in the movie was that a pun no anyways it, it just seems so weird to me that like it was like essentially the equivalent of saying like if the kid's eyes glow you'll get a pg-13 but if they don't it's a pg kind of thing right yeah mgm had little faith in the picture um they believed that it was going to flop 
Uh, so they held no press screenings. They did no advance publicity. And they put it out on June 16th, 1960 in one theater, the Ritz in London to start. To start. Yeah. Wow. Word of mouth was exceptionally strong. And by the end of the week, people were lined up around the block to see it. So MGM started moving it to other theaters in the UK, um, realizing they had kind of a sleeper hit on their hand. It was nationwide in the UK by November, and then it opened in select theaters in the US in October and was kind of in wide release in the US by December. And the box office take for the film ended up being $2.175 million when all was said and done. Wow. And... You said it cost about 300K yeah. American dollars? Wow. Yeah. So big sleeper hit of the year. Um, additionally, Village of the Dam won strong critical praise from both UK and US critics. Uh, UK critics called it chilling and creepy and praised the pacing, tone, and performances. US critics praised the docudrama uh, approach. They called the film unnerving and eerie and criticized MGM's decision not to promote the movie properly. <laughs> Today, the film is considered a horror classic uh, and it spawned a sequel in 1964 and a remake by John Carpenter in 1995. Very cool. Uh, how are we going to be watching it today? Well, Village of the Damned is available on Blu-ray from Warner Archive and you can rent it online through Apple TV, Google Play, YouTube, and Amazon Video. So it's widely available. That's what's so nice when we hit a movie that is like a big movie, mm -hmm. you know? Like, it's going to be easy to watch it. Yeah. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy to watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Village of the Damned from 1960, directed by Wolf Rilla. See you on the other side, everybody. Badass name, by the way. <laughs> Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Village of the Damned from 1960, directed by Wolf Rilla. Ben, uh, first thoughts? It's good. It's a good movie. Um, I think it's a very fascinating science fiction story. I think it's fairly smart. And I like that it kind of goes at its own pace. Yeah. I... Also enjoyed this movie. I think there are some things that are a little unfortunate about it that are just a subject of its time. Mm, interesting. Uh, but I didn't realize how many stills I had seen from this movie until watching it. Oh, cool. Yeah. A lot of the, the kids in the matching outfits. Well, I think the story is pretty faithful to the book, but why don't you take us through it, Sarah? Yeah, as you said, it's pretty accurate. I don't believe there's any major changes. Conveniently, while on the phone with his brother-in-law, who works at the military, Gordon Zellaby passes out along with every resident in Midwich Village. 
His brother-in-law, Alan, comes to the village to kind of check it out. He connects with the local police about this unseen aura around Midwich that is causing unconsciousness. Eventually, everyone wakes up and the military is here and they're running tests, uh, but everything is, um, I'll say, inconclusive. In other words, they can't tell what caused it and there seems to be no ill effects afterward. A few months later, and it turns out all women of childbearing age are, quote, going to have a baby, end quote, because we apparently cannot say the word pregnant. Oh, no. That would be very distasteful. Absolutely. Gordon, who married late in life, is thrilled. We see him celebrating with his wife, Anthea. Other women in the village who are unwed, or their husbands are away, or they're 17, are not thrilled. Uh, There is uh, mention of an attempted suicide. Everyone determines, though, that conception was on the day of the mass fainting. So there's further tests and further monitoring. We see that Gordon's wife, Anthea, is distressed for a scene about just what is inside her. Uh, But that all fades away when the kid is born. She loves him dearly. Um, They name him David. He has strange eyes, platinum blonde hair, narrow fingertips, and grows at an unusual pace. If you aren't familiar with the visuals from this movie, think about Draco Malfoy (laughs) from Harry Potter. Sure. Pretty much. A little bit of a different style of hair, but that's the look they're going for. As the kids in the village age, uh, they increasingly odd, um, very adult, very emotionless. Adult as in like speaking as if an adult rather than as a kid. They also like just straight up age super quickly, right? Like yes. They're like two or three and they look like they're 10. Yes. Um, they move as a group. When one learns something, they all learn something and they have some sort of telepathic influence on others. Uh, which you can tell they are exerting when they stare at you. Three years later, and as Ben said, uh, the kids all appear about ten. They show no emotion, they seem to have no conscience, they have no affection. And Gordon, who is a professor, of what, I don't know, (laughs) goes with Alan to London uh, on a military panel to talk about Midwich Village, what they're going to do with the kids, We learn that there are four other places in the world, same as what I kind of described in the context setting, Uh, one in Australia, one in the Canadian Arctic, one in Mongolia, and one in Russia. Now, um, this I don't know if this is just different in the novel or it was just the synopsis that I read for context setting, but all of those places, the kids didn't survive for one reason or another, except Russia. They are being taught at an alarming level Mm -hmm. there are some theories thrown around about where these kids come from are they mutants and just the next generation of human evolution or are they aliens from radio waves or whatever um for gordon's part he believes that they are extraterrestrial and that humankind can learn a lot because they're brain power their intellect can clearly push us to be more advanced and he begs and gets one year to teach the children of midwich village kind of as like uh 
you know, here's how the world works, you know, atoms, physics, whatever, but also to try to teach them to have a conscience a little bit. Um, now, of course, this is overlooking or at the very least hand-waving away that they have caused harm. Uh, as a child, uh, like it, in the crib, um, David forced Anthea to burn her hand when she gave him too hot of milk. There's talk about how the children caused a kid to drown himself. Uh, they cause a man to drive into a wall to kill himself um, and change Anthea's memory so she can't accuse them. Uh, and they also force a guy to shoot himself in the head with a shotgun. Clearly, things are getting a little out of hand in Midwich, and especially since it's like not before that year has ended and the military intelligence has learned that the Russian village was nuked because the kids were trying to take over. So Gordon's like, well, we can't bomb all of Midwich, and the kids will know what's coming if we do anything about it. Uh, there's at one point an angry mob and they force the guy leading the mob to self-immolate so that they read minds. So you can't try to surprise them. And so using his mental fortitude and thinking of a brick wall to kind of establish a barrier between his inner thoughts and what the kids can read, Gordon puts a bomb in his bag and goes to the children for his weekly lesson um, they've also shown to have kind of a, a trust of Gordon um, because he doesn't seem to fear them. Uh, he respects their intelligence. So they've actually come to Gordon to be like, hey, we just want to be left alone. Um, let's set up an escape plan. You'll take us, you'll drop us off one at a time at like nearby villages so we can like grow up. We just want to be left alone. So Gordon's also coming to talk about that plan. And he kind of tries to stall a bit um, using that brick wall mental fortitude just in time for the bomb to blow up and everything explodes. The house itself, you know, explodes. It gets set on fire. Uh, and then we see kind of like a thing where it's like, are the eyes escaping as a way to like visually convey that the consciousness of these children is escaping this fire or is this just a spooky effect because it's like the climax of the movie and a big bomb just went off um i feel like they were trying to make it a little ambiguous so in my notes i have the end dot dot question mark yeah the ending bit is a little strange i just took it as like a visual like metaphor like i i i interpreted it as the kids are dead and, you know, we are now free of them. And that's why all the eyes like leave the frame. But I could totally see someone interpreting it as like their consciousness going off to somewhere else. Yeah, back to space or something. Yeah, it's a little unclear. At the very least, it is a cool effect. Yeah. So as I said, fairly close to the novel, um, I think that they did a good job adapting it. Um, I just feel like it's a real shame that not enough is from or including a women's perspective um, yeah. because we basically get a little bit of a, a montage doesn't feel like the right word, but a series of scenes of like women discovering that they are pregnant and sure. And is thrilled, but then we see 
the woman who has never had sex. We see the dad dealing with the fact that his 17 year old daughter is pregnant. Um, we see a guy who like just came back from being deployed or at sea. Um, like that day and his wife's pregnant and he's super mad and it's also kind of implied that he suspects his brother. And then that's it. The only other thing that we get from a woman's perspective in terms of the pregnancy part is Anthea being like, what is inside me? What is going on? But then that gets hand waved away the minute that the kid comes. Um, I will say just for point of order, there is some moments where Anthea is clearly distressed that her kid isn't showing her affection. She tries to help him and she he's like, that's enough mother and like walks away or whatever, which I can understand being a little bit distressing. But I feel like the emotional punch would have come from showing these different female experiences of being pregnant without their choice uh, and going through that yeah the movie's kind of hamstrung in some ways by certain topics that it can't talk about like pregnancy <laughs> right like they have to dance around saying the word pregnant they can't obviously broach the subject of abortion no which would be like a pretty like if you were to do this movie today well maybe not today maybe like set 10 years ago it would be a pretty natural i think thing like oh there's a suspicious weird pregnancy that might be from outer space yeah just abort that shit uh but you can't even talk about it here yeah there's no not even like uh any kind of implication yeah um that's not even brought up and when they are discussing who is pregnant they talk to the vicar or like the bishop mm -hmm. or whoever would be taking confession yeah um so yeah, they the can vicar. yeah so they can have him say like yeah, no, I've had like four women confess that they're pregnant and they don't know how they got that way. Yeah. But when they're talking about pregnancy, a religious figure is in the scene. Sure. Notably, no women in that scene either. Yeah. Um, the other thing they can't really talk about, like when they're batting around how this could have happened. And it's like, all right, so we figure that everyone got impregnated when the whole village got knocked unconscious. Um, is it aliens or random mutation? And like the movie again, like can't broach certain topics. So they can't talk about like, were these women raped? Like they can't talk about a lot of stuff and that hamstrings the movie. So you kind of have to forgive it those things because it just wasn't an option. Like you can't yeah. hold it against the movie for not doing things it couldn't do. Yeah. Right? It's in 1960. Like, Yes, it's kind of like an American movie, but it's also being filmed in the in the UK. MGM acquiesced to the very silly, like, the eyes are scary censorship thing. Like, I understand that it's a product of its time. Yeah. It's just the effect of these decisions mean that it's not going to be as effective a horror movie. Oh, yeah, totally. And I think that even with all those limitations, one of the movie's major weaknesses is the way that Barbara Shelley... Uh, and the other women are sidelined. Yes. I did a, actually, like, I do want to say I appreciate the, like, section of scenes that are the women finding out they're pregnant. Because I do like that it shows a wide variety of reactions. That it's not mm -hmm. just Anthea being like, oh, I'm pregnant. That's so great. Like, that it shows that pregnancy isn't good news for everybody. Um, so I actually did appreciate that. But it's mostly once the kids are born 
all the other mothers fade away mm-hmm. and Anthea kind of becomes the like singular surrogate. mother. Yeah, yeah. For the rest of the mother characters. And she's there mostly to illustrate how the children, you know, don't have emotional affection. I got to agree with the director that I think the script is weak. There mm-hmm. are holes in the script that definitely if they'd had more time, I think they could have figured out. So the women being sidelined after the kids are born is one part of it. Another part of it is, and this is kind of related, but like, Anthea gets sidelined, which feels kind of weird. There's this big focus on Gordon and his relationship to David. And there's this sort of like classic sci-fi horror movie element where the military guys are all like, we should just kill all the kids. And he's like, but science and study and the possibilities. And it's kind of played both as the like scientists, you know, value science over human life thing. And it's also kind of played as like, well, maybe you're biased because it's your son and you want your son to be special. And there in the scene where that comes up, uh, Gordon has this interesting line where he says, well, it's Anthea's son. There's no evidence to say it's mine. And that really just points out that the way that Anthea gets sidelined is really weird mm-hmm. because like, yeah, it's her son, right? And yeah. the point of view of these women of being impregnated mysteriously out of nowhere and then having these weirdo telepath, you know, blonde children, I know... I don't know how common this is among women. And clearly, if a mistake was made here, it was probably that like, you know, John Wyndham, Sterling Siliphant, Wolf Rilla, these are all guys. Like, did anyone here talk to a woman uh, in making this movie or figuring things out? But I know it more than one woman in my life who has expressed fear of pregnancy and expressed that to them, pregnancy feels like a weird body horror thing Mm -hmm. of like a parasite inside you that's like taking up your body's resources so yeah like in a different era this movie could have played more with that pregnancy as body horror thing i understand why it doesn't here but i still think that even being in the 60s the movie could have incorporated the women more yeah i think it's a little frustrating for that I will say that Martin Stevens as David is very good. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he does a fantastic job. Yeah, the children are all effectively creepy, uh, even if their wigs aren't great. Yeah, the wigs aren't great, but eh, it's the 60s. Um, A lot of them, (laughs) some of the kids come from poor families. Mm -hmm. And as someone who grew up in a poor family, you get very used to the bowl cut. Some Mm. of these kids have bowl cuts, Ben. Sure. Um but they are stylish. They look like they're going to Nevermore Academy. Right. I have two things about this movie that hurt my heart. Okay, interesting. Yeah, go on. George Sanders. Hmm. It is heartbreaking in this movie when he plays the piano, and particularly at the end, he's playing the piano, and he's reminiscing with his wife about like when they first met And if you know the story, you know that this is him like reminiscing before he goes and blows himself up. And then you also see him getting the bomb ready. So you get, you know, the tragedy there. And knowing the way that he dies in real life and just like destroying his piano and then going and committing suicide, like it is heartbreaking. And 
was very sad. I will say that one of the creative decisions that the movie makes in like one of the few ways that it diverges from the book, um, I'm a big fan of, which is that Gordon doesn't have a terminal illness. Yeah. Like, you know, it's something that when you read the book, it's like, yeah, okay, that all tracks. You don't really notice that it's a bad decision creatively, but when you see it without, you realize what like a kind of cop out that is. Like, it's not really a sacrifice Mm -hmm. if it's like, well, I was going to die anyway, so I might as well die taking out these kids. Um, It's much more powerful that like, you know, he sends his wife away, he sends his brother-in-law away, and then he goes and kills himself to get rid of the kids. And it's like just a decision that he's made because he feels this responsibility from, you know, he was the one who convinced the military to let them live so he could teach them. And they just, you know, kept killing people. Um, so it's a really effective part of the story. Yeah. The other part that hurts my heart is I think you can kind of see it from the context setting that I gave about the changeling folklore Mm. and scholarship on the changing folklore, kind of tying it to people having neurodivergent kids Mm. and not being sure what to do because it's the 1600s or whatever. Yeah. And in this movie, it feels like the horror is supposed to be like, that these kids are dispassionate. Um, yes, to the point of killing people, that is definitely like the horror. But before they get to killing people, it's like that they don't show emotion, that they are distant from parents, they don't want to be hugged. Things that, on a very stereotypical level, are signs of neurodivergence in children. And it's it's not that the movie is specifically being like, neurodivergent children are bad yeah the movie's not trying to do anything with that but given that in even today's culture neurodivergence in children is seen as like a really bad thing to the point where people are scared to give children vaccines due to debunked studies it's um just a little like it hurts my heart a little bit Mm -hmm. as i said i'm not saying that's the intent of the movie but it that is something that i'm picking up Yeah, I think, so I like this movie. There are things I like about it, but there's also things I don't like. And this movie doesn't work for me as well as it could. Mm -hmm. Um, On one level, it kind of feels like a feature length Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, I can get behind that. But like, as I kind of outlined, a lot of the people involved in the production of the movie were brought from TV um, to do this film. So that kind of makes sense to me. That being said, um, one of the things I did like was the cinematography by George Faithful, which pulls off a lot of really cool shots and atmospheric moments. Lots of moving camera. We get quite a few crane shots. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah, it it's good. Yeah, there's there's parts of the story that work and parts that don't. One of the big parts that doesn't work for me is the story isn't really about anything. Yeah. Um. You know, going into this, I was like, I wonder if there's something here about the generation gap, um, which became such a big deal in the 60s that like, oh, my God, my kids don't share my values. Um, But that's not really what's going on here at all. There's no real sense of that. Um, There's no real allegory to, you know, teen rebellion or anything like that here. Like you're picking up ways that it is applicable to the experience of like, 
you know, autistic kids, neurodivergent kids, but there's no intent yeah. here about it. Like the kids are just meant to be creepy and weird. It, yeah. There's like this thing of like, well, should you dislike something just cause it's different? But like, there's enough stuff stacked against the kids here where it's like, this of is them purposefully killing people. Well, not even accidents. <laughs> also like there's a kind of a difference between like, you know, you know, at one point Gordon accuses the military of like fear of the unknown and what you don't understand and how that's ignorant. And I, I get it, but also like there is a difference between, you know, having a kid who's born different and all of the women in a village falling pregnant on the same day, giving birth like six months later to kids who grow to the age of 10 within three years and are telepathic and can take control of your mind. Like, okay, like at a certain point, the fear of the unknown becomes justified, right? Um, <laughs> there are things that are effective about the kids and aren't effective about the kids. Um, I think they're effectively creepy. I really like, like one of my favorite things about this story, and I think it's part of the novel too, is the total ambiguity about what the kids are and what they want. Yeah. Like, sure, Gordon's theory is that aliens shot radio waves at the Earth so hard it made some women pregnant, and now there's these super babies. But, like, that's never confirmed by the kids. It's never confirmed by anything. And what also isn't confirmed is what they want to do other than um, they want to get old enough and survive long enough to make more colonies of themselves. Yeah. But, like their murderous habits like are they an invasion force or are they just defending themselves a little too aggressively right because they never initiate violence it's always in reaction to someone else whether it's someone giving them milk that's too hot or picking on them to someone trying to kill them right that being said there's like a central theme in this movie that doesn't work at all because of what i'm gonna call Male emotional blindness. <laughs> okay. So the big theme in the movie is emotion versus reason. Yes. This idea that like the kids don't have emotions and that emotions are a weakness of humans. Like the kids say like you would have as powerful brains as us if you didn't have emotions. And <laughs> like everything that the kids do is logical. And, you know, that's why mom can't break through to them. Dad can't break through to them because like, they're just these logical, emotionless, you know, thinking machines. That's demonstrably bullshit in the movie. Yeah. Because they are defending themselves so hard. Yeah. Right. It's an emotional reaction that they cause that dude to drive into the wall. Exactly. Their responses to feeling threatened are out of proportion to what has happened. Right. Like one of the girls gets almost run over and the guy comes out of the car and is like i'm so sorry that was totally my fault i didn't see you there really sorry about that and they're like well sorry you have to kill yourself now or you know the thing with the hot milk it's like oh the milk was a little bit too hot so i'm gonna make you burn your hand it makes sense in the context of them being children um having temper tantrums right if you have an omnipotent baby it's gonna have some pretty bad temper tantrums yeah right? yeah seen star um, trek Exactly. And, you know, there's even a very good scene where Gordon points out, like, they're kids. Kids are not born with a sense of right and wrong. It has to be taught to them. And that's his whole argument for wanting to teach the kids at the school is like, I can teach them how to be a part of society. And that 
subplot to me breaks down really poorly because we actually never see him try to teach them ethics. All the lessons he's teaching them are like E equals MC squared shit. And it's like, physics is not going to teach you ethics. We have a whole movie from Christopher Nolan this summer about how knowing physics does not teach you ethics. Like, <laughs> so, so that's kind of a failure to me that we never even see him try to teach them morality when that's the whole justification for what he's doing. It really lends credence to the idea that he's more interested in their minds than anything else. But the whole, yeah, emotion versus reason thing breaks down because of how vindictive they are. They're also like kind of stuck up and snarky. Like when Gordon is kind of nervous around them, they're all smirking at him about how nervous he is and they're very superior. And so what I noticed is when the movie says they don't have emotions, what the movie means is they don't cry. They don't feel love. They aren't affectionate to mom. In other words, the emotions that they do have, um, anger, snark, superiority complex, are emotions that men are okay to have. And it, especially in the middle of the 20th century, there was a fad for the idea that men were rational and women were irrational. Yeah. Uh, which, of course, is some bullshit sexist nonsense which you can prove by the fact that you can sort of throw a dart at any century in history. And, you know, if men are supposed to be emotional at that time in terms of the fads of society, then women are cold and emotionless, right? Like it's just some, some Mars Venus bullshit going on. <laughs> um, but the emotions that the kids have are not recognized by the story as emotions because they're emotions that men feel and men don't have emotions. Men are rational. So that's why I call it male emotional blindness. Um, in that it kind of undercuts what the movie's doing, but the movie doesn't seem to be aware of the irony, aware that it's undercutting itself, um, because the only things the movie's recognizing as emotion are like, quote-unquote, feminine emotions, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that whole part of the movie doesn't really work well. The movie does work. It's not like a failure. It's not broken. It's just you can see the time crunch that, rewriting the script was under you can see what the director meant about the script never quite working because there's ideas here that feel like they never quite mm -hmm. get taken to their conclusion the fact that the kids don't understand emotion and consider it a weakness feels like it's setting up some kind of star trekian like you know like captain pike in the cage who realizes that like the telosians can't read his mind if he stays angry or whatever but instead and this might be the thing I dislike the most about this movie, we have this brick wall thing, which is <laughs> fine. Except the movie's like, hey, brick wall, did you hear about the brick wall? Oh, Let me God. show you the brick wall it's, again. It's like the director just doesn't trust the audience to have more than like a single brain cell in their head. He like, he's like, I can't get through to the kids. It's like a, talking to a brick wall. And then he looks at a literal brick wall in his house. And he's like, brick wall. And then like a scene or two later, he's like, brick wall, looking at the brick wall. And then he's like, I think I found a way to get through to the kids. Brick wall. And then we look at the brick wall. And then we look at him. And then we look at the brick wall. And then we look at him. And then we look at the brick wall. And then we look at him. And then he drives away with the bomb. And then we look at the brick wall. And then he gets to the kids. And they're like, we can't read your mind. And he's like, that's because I'm thinking of a brick wall. And then like, we get the brick wall superimposed over his face. And like when David finally figures out there's a bomb, we get like the superimposed brick wall over uh, George Sanders face with the brick wall, like breaking. 
I do like that visual because otherwise we would just be staring at close-ups of faces. I get that it's like a way to visually represent the psychic battle that's happening. Yeah. But by that point, the movie's been like brick wall, brick wall, brick wall, brick wall so much that it's like, I fucking get it. <laughs> like, it, it, it it's like, like, I don't know. Yeah, that was really frustrating because the movie I think is very smart. It has a very cerebral tone. We keep bringing up Star Trek because uh, it has that kind of Star Trek Twilight Zone Outer Limits kind of vibe when there was this period in pop culture where you could write intelligent sci-fi for like a few years there. And it's got that vibe until we get to that ending, which is very like, okay, so, you know, here's the concept. And maybe, maybe that's a fault of the fact that we live in 2023 and this is 1960. And, and at that time, like audiences maybe weren't so used to the idea of like psychic battles of the mind. Whereas like now that's like a big trope where like any given character in any genre show can bring up the idea of like, I have mental defenses against telepathy or whatever. And we all just go, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean like this is what, six, seven years before Star Trek even goes on air. Yeah. Like that's a fair point, but also it is a little much. Yeah. Like if they had had, three or four less brick wall showing brick wall moments, it would have been okay. Yes, exactly. It was just like highlighted, underlined, circled, Mm -hmm. starred, Mm -hmm. sticky noted. It was just like a bit much. Yeah, it's a bit much. So, you know, I don't like that. I do like, and I said this a little bit earlier, the kind of slow burn Mm -hmm. here, the way that it tells the story at its own pace, like this, the kids don't really even turn violent until like three quarters of the way through the movie. It's not in a rush to get to the horror stuff. It's willing to like take its time to set up the premise and the eeriness of it. You know, and critics thought that was good at the time too. I think that's probably why there were responses to the book as deadly dull. Mm. Um, because it probably has that similar slow pace. On the other hand, while the story is told at its own pace in a way that feels natural. The movie, to me, really feels like it fails to get across a sense of time. Yeah, because the only reason why we know it's like three years later or whatever is because we have scenes where the military is like, so it's been three years. How are the kids? Yeah. It If it wasn't for the dialogue that mentions like, oh, it's been a month, it's been two months, it's been a year, it's been two years, whatever, along the way, it literally feels like this movie happens in the course of like a week because we don't really see any changes to anyone in the village. I swear to God, most of them are wearing the same costume the whole movie. Like nobody feels like they change. Everyone's situation stays the same for like the whole three years. Anthea becomes like pregnant and then has like an infant and then has like a toddler and then a kid with no changes at all in like her body, her hairstyle, her wardrobe, anything. I get that some of that has to do with like the taboos around pregnant women and stuff, but the movie could have fucking done something, right? Like it just feels like it's really hard to get a sense of the passage of time in the village. And I think another big problem that adds to that is like other than there's kind of like one sequence where we see the kids walking along and some other kids pick on them and that doesn't go so well and 
you know, the, the parents warn the normal kids, like stay away from those kids. And they go into like the shop and they buy something and then they leave. Other than that, like one section, there isn't really a good sense of like, what is life like in the village with these kids? Yeah, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of life in the village, as you said. I think it would hammer home time passing. It would have helped give perspective of people outside of Gordon, mm-hmm. really, and in Thea. And you're totally right that like it's a weakness that the Zelebes basically become like our little synecdoche for the whole village at a certain point in the story. Because like the movie sets up all these various villagers with their various problems, and they basically go away until it's time for them to become an angry mob, right? And, you know, we should have seen, you know, Gordon and Anthea are kind of well set up to have a weirdo super baby because like he's a professor and she's you know, his wife, and they seem to be quite well off. They've got a whole room in the house called the library. And the rest of the village seems fairly like, I don't know if poor is quite the right word, but like normal-ish. Well, there was a moment when Gordon is demonstrating that like they have group minds or whatever mm-hmm. with like this little puzzle box and a chocolate inside. And he goes to someone who's basically a maid mm-hmm. who has one of these kids. And she mentions like, oh, well, I don't let her have sweets. Yeah. And it's like as kids and you had group think mm-hmm. and you're like, David gets chocolate every fucking day and I have to help my mom scrub toilets. The fuck is wrong with this city? Yeah. I mean... I wish, like, I think having a bit more time in the village would help us understand those weird disconnections. And, like, the horror would have come across better if we had seen, like, how are the other moms holding up? Like... Exactly. And Thea, you know, she's upset that David doesn't love her. But otherwise, she's kind of fine. She's worried about Gordon, right? But, like, some of these moms have got to be going out of their minds. Um the little hints we get of like things aren't great in households that have like one normal kid and one mutant kid. Right. I would have liked to have known like, what did the kids do before they made Gordon Zellaby's school for gifted youngsters, you know? So yeah, I, I, I agree that like we could have gotten a better sense of life in the village and that would have also really helped with the passage of time stuff. Um, you know, Again, I still think this is a good movie. I think by the end, it's a good horror movie. I think for the majority of it, it's also a good little sci-fi thriller. The last things I'll mention, and I'm, I'm sorry, these are like still negatives because it's it's really giving the impression that I didn't like this, but this is a good film. But when it's when you have a movie that has the reputation of being a classic. And we've also just done Psycho. Sure. Flaws stand out more, right? Because it's like you could have been better. I felt like the escalation in the movie story was a little bit uneven. So like there's a point where the kids have psychic powers and they've caused a little boy to drown. And like Gordon's argument is kids have accidents. Yeah. Or like kids get into fights. Like kids don't have ethics. Like you have to teach kids ethics and kids, super kids without ethics are going to be double dangerous. And by that point, the military is already like, let's kill all of them. And then, you know, the kids kill three people. And then Gordon's like, all right, let's blow myself up. And I just felt like the climax, I wanted more of a sense of crisis and desperation by the time we get to like, let's kill myself. Mm, But that would be emotion, Ben. (laughs) 
Because, like, the movie tries to create this sense of crisis and desperation by being like, hey, so I just got off the phone with General What's-His-Name. The Russians killed theirs because they tried to take over. And I kind of wanted to see these kids try to take over a little bit to make things seem, like, a little more desperate at the end, where it's like, we really need to do something. Because at the end of the movie, the kids are just like, we just want to fade away. Yeah. We just want to like live our lives. Can you get us to some foster homes? And while that is still, like I said before, part of that ambiguity about like, are the kids evil or are they just defending themselves that I said I liked about the movie? It still means that like the energy level in the movie doesn't feel like it quite earns the suicide bomber ending, um, even though it is a good ending and I do appreciate it. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about is why I think the critics liked this so much, which has been such a surprise after critics have hated horror movies for for generations. And I think it's a weakness in the movie, actually. Oh. So I think one of the reasons the critics liked this is this movie is very tasteful. Sure. It's scary. We don't see shit. Yeah. All of the violence is off screen. That guy who blows his brains out, off screen. Even like her burning her hand is basically off screen. Uh, The guy who drives into the wall, we do see that, but we don't see anything like We don't see him. The guy who lights himself on fire, we don't see at all. We kind of see him drop some fire at his feet. And then we see some shots of him like standing there looking scared while there's some flames in front of the camera. And then the next thing we know, everyone's reacting to his dead body, which we don't see at all. Just all of the violence is kept solely off screen. And I think, you know, critics praised this film for being low-key and subtle and unnerving. And meanwhile, they were totally against, like, Psycho as being, like, too gruesome and, and you know, people were vomiting in, their, in, in the aisles <laughs> kind of thing. And I think by 1960, by this time the degree to which this movie keeps all of its upsetting stuff off screen, you know, and that includes not just the violence, but like the themes of pregnancy that we were talking about earlier. Like this movie is very polite. Even the kids, like the kids are evil telepathic monsters, but they're very polite about it. We just want to be left alone and we don't want anyone else to be hurt. (laughs) I was going to make a joke about, we don't see any of the pregnancy on screen. Like, (laughs) I want to see the crown or nothing at all. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true. Like we don't even see women showing. Uh, We do actually. Uh, But they're all under heavy coats when they're going into that mobile x-ray unit. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 So that's it. I guess what I'm getting at is while I think Village of the Damned is a good little horror movie, I don't think it's anywhere near as good as it could be. Because it is so tasteful and reserved and polite. And those are not really things that a horror movie should be. Well, let's move on to ranking. Okay. I feel like we've we've given this movie some fair criticism. We might get in trouble for that because this yeah. is a, you know, a classic. Nah. Well-loved little movie. I have a range for this movie. It's a fairly small range. It's also kind of low, but it's still above the halfway point. Well, I think it's good to just start with the bad seed. Yes, and that's where I started looking, for Beauty. sure. Uh, is that where you started looking, too? Yes. Okay. Do you have a spot, or do you have a range? I have a range. Is it big? It is. Okay, well, let's start with you, then. Okay, so 
we started with the bad seed. It is currently ranked at number 105. If folks do want to listen back to that, that is episode 194. We ranked it so low because we felt it was like too melodramatic, if I remember correctly. Yes, and then also stuff has come up above it. Yeah. So it just gets bumped down, you know? That's fair. Um, Because while it is ranked at 105, that's still above middle of the list because we have 275 films. That's right. Middle of the list currently is 137. It's the line between White Zombie and Invisible Ghost. That's that's the line between good and bad (laughs) right now. So I felt it was also like almost a hundred episodes ago, more than more than yeah, yeah wow. nearly 200. Um, yeah, I, it's very melodramatic. It ends after the credits of like the mom spanking her kid because of a joke kind of thing from the, the play. Also, there's only one of her. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, like the creepiest, the creepy, creepy parts for me were when the children were like surrounding Alan. Yes. Yeah. That's when it gets really creepy is like realizing they're a group. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I think this is going above the bad seed for me. And then I was at a loss. (laughs) And so ultimately I kind of just out of nowhere picked Abominable Snowman at 77 Okay. So I was like, what Village of the Damned is doing does not compare to the tension in Abominable Snowman. I also, you know, Bucket of Blood is up here, Chris of the Undead. I feel like these movies are better. Uh, no offense to Village of the Damned, but it's just like, I got it. Also, where are the women? <laughs> Fuck. Give me the fucking women in a pregnancy <laughs> story. My God. Uh, okay, I'm getting a little too rowdy now. But that was my range, basically, 77 to 105. Okay, so I also started with the Bad Seed. I came to a different conclusion, which is that I liked Bad Seed more. And That's totally fair. My feeling was that as much as I do think, like, the group think children are creepy, there's almost something scarier or at least more effective in focusing on one child, uh, at least on, like, a narrative level. The other thing about the Bad Seed is, like, She's not an alien. She's not like possessed. She's not like a devil. She's not a changeling. She's just a psychopath. Like she's just a psychopathic child. And something about that is really scary because that's just a thing that can happen. Um, It's not fantastical. And while that movie is a little too melodramatic, the way that Village of the Damned keeps everything that's unpleasant off screen kind of sanitizes everything to a degree that like that little girl putting the dude in the furnace to like get rid of the evidence of her killing him is like not like that's a whole other thing right that's very fair so i thought worse than bad seed and then looking below bad seed we have like lady vampire and the wasp woman and Cult of the Cobra, and and things kind of get real bad real fast. But, you know, there's uh, Quatermass 2 at 109. Uh, The Thing That Couldn't Die, 110. That's the uh, zombie Spanish conquistador movie. Yeah. Village of the Dam, definitely better than that. Yes. Definitely. So my range was actually 105 to 110. So honestly, between you and me, I think the thing we have to actually decide is better or worse than Bad Seed. Yeah, I say put Bad Seed above. Mm-hmm. Um, you make really good points. Um, not that I didn't. <laughs> Sorry, that makes me sound really, 
Ugh, hide no, yeah, myself. I, but like, um, I, I think you make really good points. And uh, yeah, this movie is fairly sanitized. I mean, this movie also solidifies the evil children in a yeah. way that the bad seed didn't. Yes, it's it's got a big legacy. It's very well known. I think the thing that really pushed this movie over the line into classic territory was honestly the eye effect. Yes, the thing absolutely. that the British censors didn't like. Like, you need something visual to hook onto. That's why monster movies have that as a hook. Right, and like. Honestly, how many sci-fi horror things have glowing eyes after this? Star Trek. Yeah. Like, first episode. Yeah. Like all of the like weirdo creepy freaks on Star Trek have weird glowing eyes. And like it's just it's such a thing after this. So it has this big legacy. Um, again, I want to stress, not a bad movie. But I think on a horror movie list, maybe it isn't as doing as strong as it could, especially given that it's 1960. Like, Bad Seed was 56. Yeah. Right? Wasp Woman. It had a lot of interesting things to say about women and feminism and leaning in. Yes. Because Roger (laughs) Corman is surprisingly, like, a lot smarter than you think. (laughs) Progressive. You can say progressive. Sure. This movie, Village of the Damned, is so hampered both narratively through the things I spoke about with regards to women in a pregnancy story and the things you spoke about in regards to emotional intelligence, Mm -hmm. uh, that Wasp Woman is somehow a little bit more understanding. But here's the thing. It's also bad. (laughs) Bad. Yeah, Wasp Woman is bad. It's not the best. No, the makeup is bad. Uh, it also kind of devolves into like, oh, it, it, jealousy or whatever. Yeah, it's not great. Lady Vampire is really fun, but it's... But the appeal then. Mm. The appeal brought in a lot of really Social interesting value. things about sexuality in society. In Japan, yeah. So let's put it between those two then. Between <sighs> Anakio Ketsuki and the Wasp Woman. I feel like we're going to get in trouble for that. But um Okay. I, I'm inclined to do it. I don't have the great affection for Village of the Damned that many have. I feel like they should have pushed more for the violence, for the subject matter, for the kids. Should have been should have done more. But also these are a bunch of TV guys doing movies. Why they're, would they push? Like they're like, oh, we're getting into movies, right? It's also just it's British. It's so it's very British. British. And it's, it's British. MGM who've never really been like big horror, horror folks. people. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of like sticking the toes, you know, in to test the waters kind of stuff. And, and I mean, even they didn't expect this to do well. No, I mean, to Village of the Dam's credit, it made a lot of fucking money. Like it was popular. Yeah. Right? It's got that big legacy that does give it a lot of weight. Um, I, I I think that legacy and the degree of success it achieved, I think for me, pushes it above Lady Vampire. But I do think... Below Bad Seed? Yeah. All right. Cool. All right. Entering the list at the new number 106, it's Village of the Damned from director Wolf Rilla from 1960. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the mini episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. 
If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr, or you can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed, leave us a rating or a review on your podcasting app of choice. That really helps us out algorithmically and makes us feel good about ourselves. You can tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow our audience. And uh, if you feel so inclined, head on over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast and throw us a minimum of a buck a month uh, just to show how much you appreciate us, help us take the time out to do the show, pay our hosting fees, that kind of stuff. Um, patrons at the five and ten dollar levels get access to regular bonus content and you know we really appreciate uh the community of patrons that we have um it's always great to i don't know see you guys each and every month so that's patreon.com slash scream scene podcast so what are we watching next week ben next week sarah we return to america oh and american international pictures oh no with director roger corman hmm He's decided not to make cheap crap anymore. No, we're going to get ambitious up in this shit. We're going to get with Vincent Price. We're going to shoot in widescreen. We're going to shoot in color. We're going to adapt some literature. It's Fall of the House of Usher. Hmm. We just adapted some literature, for the record. No, Roger Corman's going to adapt some literature. Roger Corman's getting fancy. He got his library card. (laughs) Great. Looking forward to it. Honestly, I've, I've really been itching to get to these Roger Corman Poe adaptations. So we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.